Hello, it's December 15th, 2021. My name is Simone, and this is 90s Crime Time. Hello and welcome to a brand new episode of 90s Crime Time. And if you're new to 90s Crime Time, welcome to the show. I'm officially back, and thank you to all who have stuck by 90s Crime Time and waited for brand new episodes to release. And I'm very grateful for that. Also, I hope you all had a wonderful weekend and are having a great start to your week. And as far as today's episode, um, I tried to find a case that took place around Thanksgiving, and I did, but I do apologize that it was late and Thanksgiving has passed, but I'm going to read about it anyway, and I hope you are intrigued. So let's dive in to this case. The year was 1996, and in the city of Seattle, Washington, this major city is known for lots of things. For one, almost everyone around the world knows of Seattle's homegrown brand that is Starbucks. Also in Seattle, especially during most of the 1990s, the former NBA team, the Supersonics, made Seattle proud and dominated wins in the NBA. And they made their fans even prouder when they made it to the 1996 NBA Finals. Outside of entertainment, Seattle is known for beautiful scenery and man-made islands surrounding its city. But in November 1996, as the people of Seattle were preparing for the Thanksgiving holiday, Someone in the city was not in a festive spirit and was secretly terrorizing many businesses around the area. And when their terror came to a crashing halt, the criminal's identity and the reveal of their operation would shock the people who knew them. In the following case, you'll find out just who the criminal was terrorizing businesses in Seattle and its surrounding areas learn about the investigation, and find out the shocking aftermath in a case I title, Bandit. This particular 90s story takes place primarily in the state of Washington. However, let's take a trip a few decades back to Reston, Virginia. In Reston, William and Mary Jane Skurlock had been married for a while, and they centered their lives around religion, specifically 
Christianity and involved themselves a lot in the church. William, also known as Bill, served as a youth pastor of the local Baptist church and Mary Jane taught in an elementary school. According to reports, Mr. and Mrs. Skurlock preferred to be simple in appearance and instead focused on life instead of looks. And sometime during their marriage, Mary Jane and Bill decided they wanted to become parents. As luck would have it, Mary Jane would give birth to a daughter, and then the couple took in a cousin's daughter. And then, on March 5, 1955, Bill and Mary Jane gave birth to their only son they named William Scott Skurlock. According to reports, even though the Skurlocks were firm in their marriage and Christian beliefs, they were relaxed when it came to parenting. As a matter of fact, discipline was not in the cards for them. When it came to parenting, Bill and Mary Jane had the philosophy of it was okay for their children to do whatever they wanted and make their own mistakes. They wanted their children to pretty much have free reign and talk to them about anything without having to be scared of possible punishment. According to people who knew him, William, who went by Scott, when he was growing up, his friend's parents punished them for breaking a rule. But Scott didn't have any rules at all because his parents gave him the right to make his own rules. One report even said that Bill doted on his son, and even if he acted out, he would get a kick out of his antics. For example, according to a report, one day Scott, quote-unquote, borrowed a van from someone he didn't know when he was 15 and took several of his friends to the ocean. And apparently, no one in his family was bothered by it, that's just the way Scott was. But as he grew older, Scott became known as very smart and clever, and he had the Hollywood looks to match. And although Minnie and Rustin viewed the Skurlocks as plain and boring, Scott was the total opposite and was wild and charming. And due to the fact that Minnie thought he was cute, many people wanted to be his friend. Scott was also athletic and played basketball in high school, but sports were never his true calling as he was more of a nature lover and adventurer. And it was his love for nature and adventure that took him to Hawaii right after high school in 1974, where he met up with one of his best friends from high school named Kevin Myers who was attending the University of Hawaii. In true Scott nature, Scott had no problem making a living in Hawaii because since he was born, he'd been encouraged to make his own way in life. Scott got a job at a place called Hawaii Plant Life and Privacy Fences 
and he was making his own way in life. And he was fortunate enough to be able to rent and live with his supervisor who rented him his basement. Scott didn't have enough money to buy a car at first, so he bought a bike to get around. And with his bike, when he wasn't working, Scott picked up women living in his area, and they thought he was so incredibly handsome and charismatic, and he looked like Mel Gibson's twin. And speaking of his good looks, on the side, Scott applied for freelance modeling jobs, and he got hired often. He was also employed as a lay greeter, and his job was to kiss lady passengers as they walked through arrival gates and put lays around their necks. Things were okay for Scott, but for his friend Kevin, things were not. Almost as soon as the scholarship was started, it was over. The University of Hawaii cut the track program due to budget cuts, and due to the fact that the school felt they didn't need to pay a track star's tuition, even though he was one of the top track stars in the country, Kevin was out of luck and he dropped out. He had nowhere else to go, but a fellow runner suggested that he live with him in a jungle, in a place that had no windows, but had a roof, four walls, and mosquito netting. Kevin, with nowhere else to go, took him up on his offer, but quickly backed out when he realized the place was occupied with goats. He didn't want to go back to Virginia, and even if he did, he was too broke to get a plane back. So he turned to Scott. By now, Scott was a supervisor at his job and was able to get Kevin a job there too. And Scott's landlord allowed Kevin to share Scott's room with him. Kevin was now sort of settled, but what was sort of unsettling was small occurrences that were happening with Scott. Scott, even though he was confident and charismatic, would frequently come to Kevin and tell him about his struggles. Scott told Kevin that he was concerned about the quote-unquote dark things that frightened him, but he couldn't actually tell Kevin what the dark things were. And on one occasion, Scott was taking a shower, and after he turned on the water, Scott told Kevin that the basement went dark. He then said he cut the light back on, and when he went back in the shower, he said the lights were off again. Terrified, Scott waited outside with his club in hand until Kevin came home. But despite Scott's fears, both men continued to work for the company. And as luck would have it, one of Kevin's former track coaches, who was also a tomato farmer, reached out to him after hearing about his difficult housing situation, sharing a bunk bed with Scott, and offered him a place to stay in a small house on his farm for $270 a month. And in even better news, Kevin's former track coach told Kevin that he would give him his first four months for free if he helped him paint his house and landscape it. Kevin was no fool and took him up on his offer, moved out, began working the project, and questioned Scott if he wanted to help. 
Scott agreed, and then he too moved on the tomato farm. Not only did the two men paint the house and landscape, they also worked the crops growing on the land. They had a steady income, a decent place to stay, and since Scott and Kevin loved nature, the two men felt they were on a permanent vacation. However, the landscaping and paint job went by quickly, and when certain crops weren't in season, that meant there was no garden work. And although Scott still worked at Hawaii Plant, he was soon laid off, and he and Kevin had no money for rent. But just as soon as they were trying to figure out where their next money came from, Kevin received a call from a man who owned a tourist attraction, and he offered Kevin $3,000 to paint murals there, even though Kevin was not an artist. He just applied for the job just to see if he'd get a call back, and it was all part of the hustle. Kevin accepted the job and left to go to work on the murals for a few months. And while he was on assignment, he bought a tent for $150 and lived there until the assignment was over. When he got back, he was excited to come back with the money he earned. But he was in for a shock. As he made his way back to the tomato farm, he noticed marijuana plants planted discreetly in pockets of the garden. When he questioned Scott about it, he boasted that he planted the weed and that no one saw the plants. Kevin was angry. His former track coach helped him get a better place to live and a more stable job. And now Scott was betraying both of their trusts because Kevin knew his coach would not have approved of the marijuana on the property. And since he was the one who brought Scott in, he could be in trouble too. But Scott didn't get what the problem was. While Kevin was away, he stumbled upon some marijuana plants and seeds while walking one day and began to grow and sell the product and made a few profits. But just as Kevin feared, his track coach and the owner of the tomato farm had their suspicions. And once they confirmed Scott was growing and selling marijuana on the property, they promptly evicted him. Kevin was allowed to stay, but since he was associated with Scott, they tripled his rent and moved him into the basement. Not being able to afford the higher rent, Kevin moved in temporarily with a friend and then he randomly got a job in Alberta, Canada, running youth hostels, and spent his winters back home in Ruston.
Scott moved back to Reston after his eviction. And by 1978, his father, even though he was never hard on him, persuaded Scott to enroll in college to try and get a more serious job. Scott, who was living in Reston and as a building inspector, agreed. And he thought back to the time he visited Olympia, Washington and remembered Evergreen State College and decided this was where he wanted to be. Evergreen was known to attract artists, musicians, and free thinkers. But at the same time, many in the academia world felt the school was for students who weren't really serious about education and for hippies. But Scott didn't care about what people had to say, of course, and entered Evergreen to study biochemistry and to receive scholarships and loans to pay for it all. Scott lived on campus at first, and then he rented a small home close to school that sat on 19 acres. And even though he continued to be a free spirit, Scott excelled at school and his social life, and his 20s were looking great. And while at Evergreen studying chemistry, he had an idea while he was learning chemical formulas and thought about another way to make some more money, producing meth. And as luck would have it again for Scott, he met someone on campus who was willing to help him work on his operation and taught him everything he needed to know about making and selling the product. It's not clearly known who Scott's partner was, but what is known is that they were able to make their product just right and they were raking in the money. Even better, the money Scott was earning helped him do what he did best, travel, and he took off to different places when class wasn't in session. Once again, life was looking up for him, even if he was doing illegal things. One day, while he was out by his car in his driveway, Scott didn't notice a van parked near his isolated land, but then he heard a voice yell to him, quote, you can't see the wizard today, end quote. And who was speaking to him? None other than Kevin. Scott was geeked, and at that moment, whatever bad blood that was between them was gone. Kevin had driven from Canada to visit him, after he found out where he lived. And almost immediately, Scott showed him around campus to the meth lab he was hiding at Evergreen. He couldn't actually make the meth there due to the smell it would possibly give off. But he boasted to Kevin that he had keys to his own lab where he came up with equations for his product and that no one knew what he was concocting at school. To Kevin, he thought Scott was trying to get him to work with him. But instead, Kevin focused on his painting hobby and wanted no parts in the drug game. But that was no problem. Scott had made enough money to pay people to find deserted homes to produce and cook the meth. And he had enough money to pay dealers who he trusted that wouldn't betray him. And as crazy as it may sound, Scott considered the dealers his friends 
and he took pride in his growing enterprise. And as his profits continued to roll in, Scott seemed to drift further and further away from the idea of a degree. And after six years in college and not keeping his promise to his father, Scott dropped out. By now, in 1984, with his lucrative drug operation, Scott continued to travel all over the country and the world. And according to reports, when he found a restaurant he liked, no matter the city, he'd return and rack up food bills in the hundreds, and he'd leave tips that matched the check. But over time, even though he lived and loved to travel, Scott came up with his next big idea, to build his ultimate home, a treehouse. After all, he lived on isolated land surrounded by beautiful evergreen trees. And once he and his friends located the perfect spot, they got to work on the treehouse. Scott and his fellow builders would take donated wood from people he knew, and then for more lumber, they'd take ladders and break into lumber yards at night and steal boards and beams when they needed it. In the end, Scott was able to bring together his dream home, a 60-foot, three-story treehouse. The treehouse was immaculate with its long human-length windows, a fire pole that led to lower levels, and it even had indoor plumbing. Scott's treehouse was so unique that local newspapers featured it in their papers on Scott's condition that he not be identified and he told them he worked in construction. And when the owner of the land sold the property the treehouse was on, Scott was able to use his massive drug profits and buy the property and save his home. Years went by and Scott was still carefree and reaping the benefits of his drug empire. But in 1989, that all changed. That year, 1989, Kevin went back to visit Scott. But when he saw his friend this time around, Scott was not his old, carefree self. Kevin wondered what was wrong with him, and Scott told Kevin that his most trusted distributor, Pat, who was nicknamed Captain Pat, had been shot in his head and killed, and no one knew who did it. Or why. Kevin had never seen a scared Scott before and never knew his fears, but this Scott really concerned him. Scott continued to express his concerns and he told Kevin not only did Captain Pat's murder scare him, but his death cost him money. You see, Scott told Kevin that he and Captain Pat had thought of a quote-unquote new experiment. And with this new experiment they were creating, Scott had given Captain Pat $100,000 worth of chemicals 
that he could explore with. Scott told Kevin that Captain Pat had buried the chemicals all over his property and didn't tell Scott where, because Scott didn't want to know. And now that Captain Pat was dead, Scott had no idea where his $100,000 investment was. Scott was hysterical. And even more surprising to Kevin, even though Scott made a lucrative amount of money from his drug empire, after Captain Pat's murder, Scott asserted that he was out of the drug game for good. It was just too risky, scary, and the murder hit too close to home. Scott still had money and drugs from his empire, and he told Kevin that he had white plastic buckets sealed with duct tape buried around his property. And on his property, he had diagrams that would lead him to his supply. And he figured his supply would keep him set in case he needed emergency money. But through the rest of 1989, Scott realized he didn't have as much money as he thought. And since he didn't want to get back into the full-time game, he had to come up with a plan to maintain his lavish lifestyle. But Scott definitely didn't want some stuffy office job anymore, and he liked the thought of living on the edge. So he came up with a plan, but he was going to need help, and he reached out first to an old friend named Mark Biggins. Scott had known Mark since their college days at Evergreen, and back in 1987, Mark had requested help from Scott. Mark was jobless at that time, going through a tough divorce, had a drug problem, and he was living in California. Scott listened to his problems and offered him for him to come back to Washington, and he'd give him a job working on his property, giving him $1,000 a month. Mark agreed the offer was just too good to pass up. But now... By 1992, Mark was living with a girlfriend named Tracy. And while he still worked for Scott, Tracy apparently hounded Mark to make more money. So one night, while he and Scott were drinking, Scott told him about an elaborate plan that they could do to get more cash in their hands. Mark heard the plan and he knew it was wrong, but he was broke and wanted to make Tracy and his daughter happy, and agreed to go along with Scott's plan. On June 25th, 1992, Tracy drove Scott and Mark a block away from the Seafirst Bank located in Seattle. Scott was wearing makeup and a fake nose, and Mark was wearing a Ronald Reagan mask. Scott told Mark to look out for anyone he could remember that drove a non-flashy car because they were going to need that car after they had done their deed. The two men then entered the bank and then Scott exclaimed, 
quote, this is a holdup, don't anybody move, end quote. As customers and workers got to the ground, Scott took money from the teller's drawers. Then, Mark got car keys from one of the customers he remembered driving a blue Cadillac, and they took off. Scott then turned around and told the bank, quote, have a nice day, end quote. The men were then supposed to meet back up with Tracy at a designated spot, but she wasn't there, so they abandoned the stolen car, ran through an alley, and passed a golf course where golfers saw them run with their masks on and bags of money, and they were, of course, stunned. They eventually caught up with Tracy at a remote rest stop where they washed off their makeup and Tracy drove them away along with the $19,971 that Steve and Mark had robbed. Tracy and Scott were on cloud nine after what they just pulled off, but Mark was on edge and not in a good way. He felt slimy and scared and he told Tracy they were leaving town. Tracy didn't want to go at first, but Mark persuaded her, and they drove away. And eventually, they made their way to Montana, where Mark got a job building log cabins. But he was always looking over his shoulder, and he even called people back in Washington to see if Scott had been arrested for anything. But they told him no, and that Scott was taking another trip. Meanwhile, after the robbery, the FBI had been summoned, and they lifted shoe prints left at the bank of the robber who walked behind the counter, and they were Converse Shoes, Scott's favorite brand of sneakers. Almost two months after the robbery, Scott no longer had a right-hand man in Mark, so he decided to do his next hit solo. On August 20th, 1992, he wore the mask, went back to see First Bank, took out a handgun, and demanded everyone on the floor. He then demanded money from a teller and told them to not put any dye packs in, because although it didn't happen the first time, Scott knew many tellers did this to stop potential robbers. The tellers recognized him because of his mask, but unfortunately, the bank's cameras weren't activated in time to catch him, and Scott got away with $8,124. Over the next few weeks, Scott hit more banks in the area, robbing thousands upon thousands of dollars. On October 5th, he robbed another Seattle bank and got away with his biggest amount yet, $27,000. But by this point, the FBI was further on his tail and made up a profile about him. Male, white, 30s, 5'11", 165 pounds, makeup on face, black semi-automatic pistol. But these were all the clues that they had besides the earlier shoe print. 
Scott had robbed six banks solo by this point, and this was all the FBI had on him, and they nicknamed him Hollywood. Meanwhile, Scott wanted to continue his crime spree. It was so fun, and he made almost $323,000 while doing it solo. But now he wanted to find a partner again to help him. This time, by 1993, he reached out to another old school friend named Steve Myers. Just like Mark, Steve had received help from Scott when he was in financial need, and he felt the need to return the favor. However, Steve refused to help him rob a bank, but he did agree to listen to police scanners and monitor the police for Scott as he robbed the banks and helped him scope out banks to rob. The new duo got so successful at their new plan, they even, according to reports, paid off some bank employees to find out information that would aid them in the robberies. When Steve heard anything about a robbery on the scanner, he'd get Scott's attention and they'd get away. And over time with the money they made, they took some of their loot and laundered money at casinos in Las Vegas. Steve wasn't proud of what he was doing, but he needed the money. And like mentioned before, he felt he owed Scott. By the end of 1994, Scott and Steve had robbed five banks and stolen total an estimated $264,000. In January 1995, Scott and Steve robbed a bank, but this time, even though Scott got his hands on $11,000, dye packs were attached and he had to abandon the money. But on January 26th, he returned to his first bank, Seafirst, and successfully robbed them of $252,466, which he felt was enough for the rest of the year. Meanwhile, according to reports, a group composed of FBI agents, Seattle police detectives, King County Sheriff's detectives, and other law enforcement agencies made catching the robber their top mission. They not only wanted to stop this man from taking the money, they were worried that it was only a matter of time before a gun was actually used to hurt or kill someone. It became so crucial to find Hollywood, and the media in Washington was covering the robberies so much that the Washington State Bankers Association offered a $50,000 reward for information. By January 1996, however, officials had no luck, and Scott was planning his next move. This time, he decided to reach out to an old friend, Mark, for help. So he found Mark's number and tried to get him to come back to Washington to be a third accomplice for the robberies, but he refused. But then Scott offered him money, and even though he really didn't want to, the money was too good to let down, so he went back. On January 25th, Steve continued to be the lookout, and Scott and Mark stuck up another bank. Scott had the gun and tasked himself to take the money, 
while Mark made sure no customers or workers interfered. This robbery was successful as well, as they got away with $141,405. They then took a break, but four months later, on May 22nd, they struck again at another bank and got away with $114,978. Even worse, Scott's adrenaline from robbing the bank that day was so high, he decided he wanted to rob two more banks on the same day but he changed his mind and took another month-long break. By this point, the trio had robbed 17 banks in four years, and the FBI had put out a reward for $50,000 for his capture, thinking it was only one robber involved. FBI agents drove in the middle of the night in areas visited by Scott and even slept on the roofs of the banks he had robbed. After hearing about the reward, the trio felt the rush to do even more. And by November 1996, they planned to rob five banks on the same night. However, they learned that police had convinced every Seattle area bank to put electronic tracers on any stolen money, so the trio decided to rob just one bank. On the day before Thanksgiving, 1996, Scott and Mark entered Seafirst Bank while Steve was waiting in the getaway car. Scott and Mark forced everyone to the ground, and while Mark had the gun, Scott entered the vault with the head teller and put large amounts of money into a large bag. And after they were done, they walked down the street towards the car. However, what they didn't know was that a teller that day hit a silent alarm, and as they left, a customer who was forced down got up, followed them, and called police to give their descriptions. Even worse, bad weather had hit the Lake City area near where the most recent robbery took place, so the trio were slow to leave the area, and it wasn't long before police caught up with them and tailed their getaway van. Panicked, Steve and Mark searched through the money to check for electronic devices while Scott drove calmly. But things got unbelievably way worse. Scott got tired of being followed and he didn't want to get pulled over, so he decided to stop in a neighborhood, got out of the van, and pointed a rifle at the task force officers, but he was unable to fire the weapon. In return, police shot at the van and Scott sped the van away. According to reports, two blocks away, Someone inside the van broke out the right rear window and began firing an assault rifle. Scott then shut off the headlights, ran out of the van, and fled on foot, leaving the van to roll through a field which hit a home. 
The police caught up with Steve and Mark, however, who were wounded after the shooting. And Steve told them Scott was the mastermind. And then they were both transported to the hospital. Inside the van, police and the FBI found two 12-gauge shotguns, a semi-automatic rifle, two 9mm semi-automatic pistols, three Motorola two-wave radios, and police frequency scanners, and $1.8 million in cash. Meanwhile, according to reports, Seattle police established a six-block perimeter around the area where Scott may have been, and their first concern was whether or not he was holding someone hostage. So they went door to door and questioned anyone to see if they saw anything out of the ordinary. But they came up without a trace of Scott that day. The next day, Thanksgiving, 1996, two brothers named Robert and Ronald Walker were visiting their elderly mother, Wilma, for the holiday. They knew about the manhunt to find Scott, and even though it could have been far-fetched, Ronald kept a large camper in his mother's backyard. And to keep their mother safe, and on the other hand, try to receive the reward money, he and Robert scoped around the camper for a possible sighting of Scott. And strangely, as they went to look, they noticed the camper door had been locked from the inside, and the curtains were drawn. Robert attempted to push open the hatch door, but it wouldn't budge. Meanwhile, Ronald fetched a stepladder, peered through a small window in the camper, and saw someone inside. They quietly backed away and called 911. And within minutes, police surrounded Wilma's home. One officer slowly made their way to the camper and tried to get the person's response but they didn't answer. Then the officer pried one of the windows open and emptied two canisters of pepper spray into the camper, still without a response. As a last resort, police tried to unlock the camper, but then they heard a gunshot, took immediate cover, and shot at the camper. More police came, including FBI agents, and blocked off the area. Police evacuated residents of the area, and hostage negotiators attempted repeatedly to contact the person inside. And police used more tear gas and waited, but still no response. Finally, at 7.40 p.m., police officers wearing gas masks carefully approached the camper and carefully opened the door. And there, they found the body of a man in the camper, and he'd been dead for a while, from what looked like a self-inflicted gunshot wound. And he was identified as 41-year-old Scott Skurlock. An autopsy later confirmed that although he was shot by police while inside the camper, a medical examiner determined the earlier gunshot police heard was the sound of Scott committing suicide, and the shots he received from police were post-mortem. Eventually, in 1997, 
Stephen Mark pled guilty in federal court to one count of conspiracy, one count of armed bank robbery, two counts of assault on a federal officer, and one count of the use of a firearm in commission of a felony. And in May of that year, they were both sentenced to 21 years, plus an additional five years of supervised release. Steve was released in 2013 and Mark in 2015. In total, the three men stole a collective amount of $2.3 million. The story of the bandit comes from the sources of the Seattle Times, the Associated Press, CBS News, and others I'll put in the notes. All right, that was a wild one, to say the least. And on this opinion piece, I'm going to be really, really, really brief. Um, I just want to say like two or three things. One thing is I feel like Scott had the mind to do anything he wanted to do besides rob a bank and be a drug dealer. He was obviously a brilliant mind, but I feel like he could have used it for anything else other than that. Now, I know he wanted quick money, but like I said, he could have used that mind for anything else. And I think that he sort of was a coward to leave the uh, other two, Steve and Mark, in his mess because this was all his beginning, all his plan in the first place. So I feel like he could have stayed, you know, stayed alive possibly to take out the sentence, uh, to serve out the sentence with Steve and Mark, in my opinion. Now, I know a lot of people have, you know, mental issues and I know I'm not joking about suicide by any means. But I just feel that was the cowardly way out and he could have served just alongside Mark and Steve for his mess because Mark and Steve didn't have to go along with Scott, but they also shouldn't have served it alone. Scott was just as equal as they were or more because this was all his plan. And I know Mark and Scott, uh, Mark and Steve, my apologies, felt they owed Scott because he helped them financially before, but they could have just paid him back. They didn't have to do this bank robbery unless they felt the amount he they owed him was too great. So I don't really know what they were going through their minds. Um, I, I just don't know. I feel like they could have repaid him any way else besides participating in a a federal robbery, which I know, I believe all bank robberies are federal. I'm not sure, but I do think that they are mostly like federal time and they're automatically going to be felons because of this. And, you know, is it all worth it? You know, I, I don't know. I don't know what people think these days about, you know, bank robberies and why they think they should be to participate in these things. But robbery is never the right way to go if you want to make more money get a legit job if you can um, but like I said that was going to be a really quick opinion piece because I want to hear more of what you have to think what you think about this case um, because I'd been away for so long I'd love to know what you all think about this case and hope I did well on the newer the newest episode of 90s crime time i'm a little under the weather i apologize for that but i wanted to come back really bad and i got a lot of messages from the fans of this show thanks again for being a fan i appreciate you all 
Um, a lot of fans asking me when the show is coming back. I plan back to come back in October, then November, and now it's almost the end of the year in December, but I am back and I'm really excited for that. And that's it. Thank you again for tuning in to another episode of 90s Crime Time. And I hope you were intrigued by this episode. Please let me know what you think of this episode, like I said, on 90s Crime Time social media pages on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Also, if you'd like to monetarily support this show, you can head on over to buymeacoffee.com slash 90s Crime Time and support there. And lastly, if you enjoy the show and you haven't already, please leave a review, hopefully in a good way, on any podcast platform that 90s Crime Time is on and has a rating system, primarily Apple. And since next week is Christmas, there won't be a new episode, but I will have one the following week for New Year's. So stay tuned. Uh, and that, and after that, uh, stay safe and healthy, healthier than I am right now. Have a great weekend, hopefully, and a, a great holiday slash Christmas if you celebrate it. And I'll see you soon for a brand new episode of 90s Crime Time. <laughs>